Welcome to episode 200 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I look over at my glass of seltzer and fresh limes in our dining room table. I note that it's half empty. Am I being a pessimist? I grab a glass from the cupboard and pour my wife a beverage. I pause and ask if she wants a full glass. She says half is fine, and I note it's a half full glass. Am I being an optimist? In both scenarios, I'm taking into consideration the circumstances. If I'm drinking, the glass is now half empty, and if I'm pouring, it's half full. I'm a realist. When I take in the circumstances of our current reality, I know it's futile to guess at when things will go back to, quote, normal. That doesn't stop folks from making predictions. They say things like, things will settle down over the summer. There's a good chance we can host our major event in person in the fall. We'll have a vaccine by January 2021. While I'd love for those words to be true, they are optimistic and not taking into account the harsh facts. This concept, the Stockdale Paradox, was coined by Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great. It was named after Admiral Stockdale, who was a POW for over seven years during the Vietnam War. When Admiral Stockdale was asked by Jim Collins which POWs didn't make it out, he replied, oh, that's easy, the optimists. You see, the POWs who were optimists kept saying they would be rescued by specific dates, and as those dates would come and go, they'd begin to lose faith. Admiral Stockdale's lesson from this experience, he said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Your challenge this week, yes, life has thrown you a few curveballs in 2020. Wishful thinking that this will all become a distant memory anytime soon is just that, wishful thinking. Counting down to a specific date when you can get your life back on track, will likely lead to heartache. The paradox is that life might be unfair, unjust, and a bit scary right now, but your wildest dreams could still come true. Make the most of these challenging times while having faith that life will get better at some point. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's very special surprise interview. All right, this is a very special episode of On The Schmooze. It is the 200th episode, which is pretty amazing because I've consistently been putting out a show every week for four years. So I thought, what can I do that's a little bit different? Well, then I learned from my friend, Lori Guest, who I interviewed earlier, that she has in the past hijacked her friend's shows and turned the tables and been the host and made the host the guest. And I thought, gosh, like... That is different. That feels a little scary and a lot of my comfort zone to have my show taken over by someone else. But honestly, I can't think of a better person. So welcome, Lori Guest, to your show on The Schmooze. I am so glad to be here. And for the 200th show, it's fantastic. I got to tell you, the reason I do Who Hijacked My Podcast is really simple. 
I don't know how to do a podcast of my own. I don't want to go into all the work that goes into a podcast. So really what happens is you do all the work and I get all the fun of interviewing you. What, isn't that a fantastic idea? Sounds like a win-win all around. It is. And the win-win today is going to be that maybe your listeners are going to learn more about you. Because having been a guest on your show, you were so generous with the, the questions that you asked, but allowing your guests to have time to answer. And I mean, you certainly throw in your thoughts, but I just think it's going to be interesting to see what happens when the tables are turned. All right. Well, all right. I'm, I'm ready to go. What do, we, what, what do we do? How do we kick this thing off? I'm just, we started off with me taking over and here we go. I am now in the driver's seat. So welcome to the 200th episode of On the Schmooze. And my guest today is Robbie Samuels. He's a keynote speaker, a TEDx speaker, and a relationship-based business strategist who's been recognized as a networking expert by Inc., Harvard Business Review, Ascend, and Life Hacker. And he works with event organizers and associations to create a better experience for year two participants, leading to increased member value and member retention. And in light of our current need for more virtual programming, he is assisting organizations with bringing a more engaging experience to virtual events. Welcome to your own show, Robbie. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here, Laurie. (laughs) Well, the first thing I'm going to do is ask, and this is the only time I'm going to do this, I'm going to ask you the same question you ask all your guests at the top of the show. And that is, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead because you are a good leader. I've watched you at several events now. Um, you make it look really natural, whether it came to you natural or not, I don't know, but you make it look easy. Uh, tell us about that. You know, even though I know this this question's coming and I've heard so many responses, honestly, the, the simplest one is the one I'm going to go to, which is leaders have followers. I, I mean, all, all the other ways people show up are important, um, having, you know, good ethics and morals and listening skills and all of that. But I guess the spin that I would put on it is that I believe that there is like influencers that are leaders. There are connectors who are amazing because they bring people together through introductions. And the part that I really focus on is convening or people who host. And so that, that's how I think of like leadership and particularly now in this, in this moment, how do people show up? How do people help other people create a space to connect? So I guess the way I lean into leadership is around helping others connect, uh, building community, building bridges between communities. It's always been sort of like a through line of my, my lived experience. And did you have that all the way back when you were a child? I always love it when people look, go backwards in time. What's the first time that you remember stepping up as a leader and recognizing it in yourself? Well, here's something I've never talked about in the show, probably any show, actually. Seventh grade, my maybe eighth grade, my chorus teacher uh, brought to us this idea that there was these steel jaw traps that she wanted to ban because animals would get stuck in these steel jaw traps and it's horrific what, what would happen to them. And I got this like my first ever like list to like walk around and do a petition and get my friends to all sign it. And I went to town and I really, really did this. So much so that I was selected as one of two people to go to the animal sanctuary and like present everything and get to meet all the animals. And my friend who I've been friends with for all these years, I mean, we're going back like, four, 30 years. She's still jealous <laughs> that I got to go do that. She said, that was such a well-earned honor. But man, you got to do that cool thing. 
I'm, I think that's where it started. Like I got this taste of the ability to have influence, the ability to show up and help other people. The fact that we can get together and organize and make a difference because we did make a difference. Like they, they did get banned. Um, that, that was sort of the very beginning of it. And I, and I think like it just, it lit something inside of me about what was possible. And did other things come quickly behind it? Or uh, is that just your earliest memory and then it resurfaces as an adult? Well, I, uh, I remember one of the first few days of 11th grade, um, I had been organizing like this recycling thing, uh, where we were collecting the, the cans that didn't have a nickel deposit and I was rinsing them and working with janitors to like stack them. And then the janitors would take them away. And I discovered that there was this possibility of getting polystyrene, the styrofoam trays and cups and stuff like recycled. But there was some bureaucracy where the 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 vice president, vice principal, who wanted it to happen, and the I guess company, the outside company, somehow they couldn't talk. You know, whatever red tape bureaucracy. Yeah. Well, I basically invited them to a meeting, <laughs> and <laughs> because a student made the meeting, they came and they had this conversation that was way above my head. Like I really did not understand what uh-huh. was going on, but they came to an agreement. And then I was set to go to all these different lunchroom periods to educate people about this program. And a couple of years later, when I graduated from high school, I had recommendation letters from the superintendent down to the head of the janitorial staff. And my entire district, which was enormous for suburban, very, very huge suburban school, uh, they they'd adopted the program for the entire you know district. And it really, like, I guess, you know, for me, it, it doesn't seem impossible like it just like a thing you do, you do the next thing, do the next thing. And I really learned actually there how important it was to sometimes operate from outside that I wasn't, I wasn't the like president of the class. I never got elected to an office. Um, it wasn't that, but I, but you know what I did do? People in student government were making signs and posters for me. <laughs> you yeah. know, like I was not the kid in that program, but I was right. the one t- tasking them with how to help make me the signs I needed to run my stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, that high school, I mean, I, I was an entrepreneur at a young age too. I was selling, uh, I was selling candy and gum, but like in fancy juice boxes and everything. And I sold bagel sandwiches in, wow. in, junior, in like my junior year. Yeah. I mean, I, it was cool. Like I definitely had, I had my first business card in, in high school. So like oh, all the way back, I, all the way back. And in fact, if anything, Lori, it was a strange turn of events that I ended up in nonprofit and not owning a business. Mm-hmm. But I just poured all that energy into fundraising, into uh-huh. fundraising events. Sure. And so sure. it just it just like that all happened. And then I took the turn at 40 years old back to entrepreneurship full time. Really interesting. Well, the, now the questions start that you didn't see coming. So okay. that's always fun, right? Because when yeah. you're the interviewer, you do get to drive the car. So I'm very intrigued by two things. First of all, in your intro, you talked about how you create a better experience for the year two participant, which is, I think, an interesting coined phrase. I We think a lot about the year one people. How do we attract new people? And then, of course, we always give a lot of attention to the senior members of an organization through awards and recognition. And I am curious what made you identify the year two as kind of your thing. Awesome. I'm so glad to talk about this. It's sort of a pet peeve of mine because I'm glad that we spend a lot of energy thinking about first timers. 
I'm glad that we have first timers orientation. I love it when there's a ribbon for first timers or something, a way to identify them. But honestly, no matter what we do, the word that will most describe the first timer experience is overwhelming. Like it's really hard to avoid that. A really large scale event, they're going to be overwhelmed because they're trying to do too many things. They're drinking from the fire hose, right? They're, they're attending to, they don't know if they're ever going to come back. So they just say yes to everything. They don't know anyone. So they can't take breaks with anyone. No one's inviting to lunch or for drinks. So they're kind of alone in a crowd and they kind of float through and they get to the end. They think, you know, I'll go back next year. Uh, It'll be so much easier. But honestly, it's only easier in small degrees because when they come back, they haven't stayed in touch with anyone. They this time got on a plane. Maybe the first time, you know, it was something kind of nearby. They didn't have to go travel as far. And now it's across the country. So they get on a plane and they still have the same experience. But now there's no first-timers orientation. There's nothing identifying them. They're not part of that cohort. See, when you're a first-timer and can identify other first-timers, you can be in that cohort space. But then year two, you're just kind of thrown into gen pop. Yeah. Like it's that just, is really interesting. I never thought about it before. Yeah. And you either have connected and then get to reconnect with people or you don't. Or so, you don't. Yeah. That's At the great. end of year two, people make a decision. Is this actually worth it? Because next year I'm going to have to travel again. Yeah. And the drop-off rate between years two and three can be really tremendous. But my, my point is if we focus on programming around year two, and then they not only come back year three, but they bring people yeah. because they are, they're advocates and they, they're so excited. And if you get to year five, that's, that's when it starts feeling like a reunion. And that's when people start joining boards and committees and getting more active in volunteer leadership. If we could just like, you know, shore up the experience around the year two and pour a little more energy into that, that is where I think we could have real transformative experience as an organization. Do you find organizers who want to hire you are swayed by that concept? Are they interested in that? Or do you have to convince and convert? Well, most of them hadn't thought about it. It It's just a thing. They're going through the motions of here are the things we do for first timers. Mm -hmm. And my piece is if, it's about member engagement and member participation. And ultimately for them, it's about member retention. This is a retention strategy that doesn't cost them a fortune. And, you know, it always takes less money to retain than to recruit. Sure. So if they could put some of that energy and money into this, then that would be a way to like create, mm-hmm. create a shift in, in the dynamics of an organization. Also retaining new people and younger people is often like the, the lifeblood of, of particularly of associations as yeah. they are graying and, you know, the leadership has to start making a shift with the times. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So switching gears a little bit to the podcast, um, you said uh, when we first kicked this off, this is your fourth year. So it took four years to get to 200. I love it. And so um, did you think that the podcast would last this long? Take us back to when you first thought to yourself, I think I'll do a podcast. Talk to us about your thinking at the time and, and that type of stuff. Well, I left my day job, my career at the end of 2014. Uh, this was an organization I thought I was going to be at for life. Like I thought it'd be carried out feet first. And I left after a decade. And I'd been speaking on the side for five years, getting paid. And I would take, you know, take vacation days to go do the thing and come back. And um, there was a moment where I just had the opportunity to leave. Um, my entire department had changed over. And so I was there for 10 years and everyone else was less than a year. And, you know, I love the mission, but sometimes you stay because of the people and the people weren't there anymore. Right. My wife was like, yeah, go for it. Nice. And 
I knew I wanted to shift who I served though and like my audience. And so while I had all this experience, I was also kind of starting kind of new in some ways. And the first few months, I just felt so afloat. Like I didn't have any grounding after years of being deadline driven. I was running 25 events a year um, for my organization and then 25 for a meetup that I started. And then couple of unconferences that I did just for fun, you know, like I, and then one year my wedding, like I was very like busy. Yeah. So to go from that to, I'm not sure whether I accomplished anything this week, you know? Uh So I listened to Smart Passive Income by Pat Flynn and learned a lot and learned also the concept of just in case learning versus just in time learning and realized, oh, I'm doing a little too much of the just in case learning. I better pick a lane. And then thought, I love podcasting. I'm never going to be as comfortable as a writer. I, I just, this is a great medium. So I conceptualized the idea in uh, July of 2015. My son, my first son was born in December of 2015. I had recorded like 10 shows that, that, that fall. But because of having a newborn, I actually didn't launch a show until the following summer. So July of 2016 is when the and show was really it called On the Schmooze from the very beginning? It was. Okay. And I will tell you also... I did not know I was going to last for four years, but I had a plan to last for two. And I thought that the two things I had to work on was getting better at interviewing. So judge people on their last five, not their first five episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I knew I'd get better by doing it. And then my job was to have consistent quality content. So every single Tuesday, I take off Christmas week and New Year's week and I give my team that break and that, that helps all of us. But at uh, the two-year mark, I actually started dreaming about a new show. And there was a show that I'd been wanting to do and I'd been thinking about for a couple of years. And I told myself, I won't think about it until t- the two-year mark. And I finally did. And I got so excited about this idea that I actually purchased a trademark. Now, I don't have trademarks for the rest of my business. <laughs> so this is a big deal. Laura, yeah. I made a trademark. So I'm telling you, I was so sincerely into this. And it was a great idea. And I had a business coach point something out to me, which is that I was halfway up the like 20 rung ladder to the high board to do some fancy maneuver into the pool. And that I was on rung 10 and I was looking up thinking, I don't know what's when I get there, what I'm going to do. Maybe I'm going to belly flop and embarrass. Oh, look, those people down there next to that other ladder, they're just trying to get to the fifth rung. They seem like they're kind of, oh, I could help them do that. Oh, I'll just go down there and, and start doing that. And if you always do that, if you keep switching ladders, you never get past rung 10. And so instead, I, I like, I sw- I dropped that whole old other plan, wow, and recommitted to the show. And I'm just like, this, this is it. I'm gonna just double down on this, and it's been great. That's the, the last two years. So no regret on leaving the trademarked idea behind. You it's an idea for. S- I feel like somebody else. You know, like wow. it's, a, it's somebody should do it, but it, but it's this is a this is like my passion. And I think part of what happened was that I had achieved on my own uh, a lot of the things that are about building a strong business. So podcast, book, show uh, for that that many years. Uh, Coaching. I just sort of didn't know what next. I couldn't see around the corner. So hiring better, you know, keep hiring business uh, coaches and them pressing me. And then last year I did a TEDx, which was not even something I thought I would ever do. And I started writing for HBR and just like really kind of putting myself out there in a different way. So now I think it's just that I I couldn't, I couldn't picture the next five rungs. Like Uh I needed someone to map that out for me. 
once I had that, I was back to being all in on nice. the original plan. And you said that you got better as an interviewer. I'm very curious about, do you have a particular answer to the question, what makes you a better interviewer today than when you started your first five episodes? Well, I have this list of questions and I used to have it written out and I moved a year ago and I don't know where the piece of paper went. And so one thing is that I no longer rely. I mean, the first like 10 interviews that I did, I didn't have the camera on because I was staring down at the piece of paper and thought, what was the point of turning on the camera if I'm had my head staring yeah. down the whole time? Yeah. I got much better at being able to kind of glance to see where I was. And now I just think I have an internal clock. And I've also dropped some questions. I think I asked too many questions and I didn't allow the questions to breathe. So now I have sort of segments rather than questions. And I just know that I'll be in this segment for a few minutes and then I'll like breathe into it. So I think what makes me better now is I, I ask the, both the next obvious question and then I dig again a little deeper. And I also do a quick little, oh, here's something that stood out for me that I want to like name. And I, I used to wait until the end of the show and listen to it and then do all the takeaways. And I think I just got more comfortable doing them on the fly. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of guesswork. I sometimes say, oh, so is this the through line of your business or the through line of your career? And nine out of 10 times they go, whoa, yeah, that totally is true. <laughs> you know, yeah. occasionally go, well, no, it's a little more like this. And I, and I go, yeah, tell me more about that. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not afraid to, to, to like put an idea out there and see how people respond to it. And because it's and just a good you conversation. You were done interviewing me. I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many podcasts I've been on. And, and your interview was one of the, the best ones that I had. And I was looking back later saying, what was the difference? And I might have shared this with you before, but I'm going to do it for the people who are listening. What I felt the big difference was, is you and I are actually having a real conversation that is not planned. Um, I have a couple ideas to spark my thinking on what questions I want to ask. But when you say next logical question, well, there's breathing room, there's space for us to talk. Just like when we meet up somewhere, we don't have a script what we're going to say to each other. We listen and we respond. We let the other person finish all those kinds of things. And I remember I had one interview where the gentleman said to me ahead of time, 30 questions. And I thought, oh, he's going to jump around. I at least he asked all 30 questions, one right after the other. And there was times when I gave him just a little bit of an answer thinking he'd go down the rabbit trail and we'd have an interesting conversation. And he wouldn't respond to what I just said, which led me to believe he wasn't really listening. He was just going to question number 17. And so I think what made you a great interviewer for me is that, and, and it is true, we have cameras on right now. And even though the people listening, you're only getting the audio version because we can see each other, there is that connection. And that is, you know, even if there's something I didn't agree with, I can shake my head no to let you know, no, we're not going down that path. You know, we have those verbal cues if we need them, but it's more like a real conversation, which is one of the things you excel at. So I'm glad you were able to bring that to a podcast environment because not everybody can do that. That, that. You, what the thing you just described the 30 questions, they're like, okay, thank you. My next question is like, that is a big pet peeve. I'm going to tell you what my other pet peeve is. Sure. And this actually, um, I, I'm blanking on the name of the show, but uh, we'll put it in the show notes. So this is really well-known like guy talks about podcasts and he actually learned my first question. And then he shared it as like a, a best practices in his show when he was talking about, you know, what to do. And we talked, what we talked about was, a lot of times you've experienced this as a guest. What do they do? They like read a tiny little bit about you and then they say, hey, Lori, so tell us about yourself. And it's like, where do you want me to begin? Like, I don't, like, seriously. I that, was born. 
born in a small town. I know. I'm like, uh, how far back do you want me to go? And, you know, I can tell you what hospital I was born. So um, it just, it's lazy. And I, I don't read everything anyone's ever written. I'm not trying to do that. I, I actually, I actually feel like I should know what my, what my audience knows about you. You know, like I don't, I read everything you sort of put about yourself on the internet as far as you're about. Um, sure. process, I have a whole process about that, but I don't know. I just, I just feel like the first question needs to be one that like kicks things off. And I will tell you that the reason it's a two-part question is I do want them to like give you that like formulated leadership definition. Cause I think it just gives them something to start with. But when they start telling me like how far back and they go, well, when I was in business school and I'm like, great, great. So tell me about grade school. Tell me about the playground. Tell me about film at high school. Did you run for, you know, and I sort of, and what I do is I do list a bunch of like possible adjectives of how they were. And I watch their body language to show me when I'm getting closer. Yeah. And then I like lean into that and they go, yeah, yeah it was exactly what I was like. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. That's exactly right. <laughs> so out of the 400 or 399, no, two, it would be 199 episodes you've done prior to this. What do you think is your biggest surprise? maybe it can be either the surprise of what somebody said or did that you didn't see coming if you want to share that or a surprise in yourself, something you didn't expect that has come to be true. Seth Godin said yes to being a guest. He did. Oh my gosh. I have not heard that one. Oh, tell us that story. How did you get a hold of him? A friend of mine who was helping get his podcast off the ground was a huge devotee of Seth Godin and said to me, Seth has a new book coming out. I think I'm going to ask him to be on my show. And his show didn't even exist yet. And I thought, well, then I'm going to ask him to be on my show because I have a show. <laughs> and so I, his email's public. And I, I, I reached out to him and I caught him at the moment where he was going to be doing a publicity blitz. And he said yes. And it really came down to, I asked him. People were like, how did you get Seth? I'm like, I asked him. <laughs> And he said yes. And, I, and it was just really great because I think the thing that I love most about that interview and Dory Clark and other people who've been on like so many episodes, I always go for the stories that they haven't shared a zillion other places. Now, I don't do that by having listened to every interview ever of Seth Godin. I just do it by asking questions that elicit a response that he I can genuinely tell when people let go of their facade and stop doing their like normal spiel. Uh-huh. And, and often going back in time to, to childhood is a way to start that off. And it shifts the dynamic of the rest of the conversation because they just, they feel on less guarded and just, it like brings up this a different shift in energy of memories and time. So ha- being able to do that with him was really special. Like being able to do that with Dory, who at the time I interviewed Dory, she'd been like 185 podcasts. And that's probably like 600. Uh, who knows? Um, t- like looking for the untold stories has been a passion of mine. And it's, it's always a joy when I get to the end and they go, yeah, yeah, I've never talked about that. And I'm like, yeah. yes. Yes, that's what you want. And I'd love if there's a takeaway for this that belongs in the show notes, it's the idea of just ask. And the just ask is such an interesting concept. I remember when I wrote my first book, I didn't know anything about how you get permission to quote people. And uh, there was a particular quote right out of the movie, The Reader, that I thought was perfect for a point I was trying to make. And I'm thinking, you know, some people told me you would just go ahead and do that and put the guy's name. Other people said you had to get permission. It was all over the board. And I was green and didn't know what I was doing on being a writer. And it was uh, being self-pub. So I didn't even have professional advice. And I thought, 
what if I just looked up the author's name and wrote to him and told him I'm writing my first book and I just want to use this as a quote and somebody on his team will write me back. I'm thinking, how can it hurt? And so I wrote to him and he himself wrote back and then even said, I would enjoy a copy of the book when it's available. And it's like, to me, it was just like, you know, I don't know if he typed the email, but I think he did. And it's just exciting to go. And somebody said, oh, how'd you get that? I'm like, I just wrote to it, you know? And, and I love the idea of just, what's the worst thing he can do? Seth could be like, who are you? No, I'm not giving you an interview, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you gotta you gotta ask. I mean, this is my background in fundraising and now doing sales and entrepreneur. It's like, you know, anytime you make it about yourself and your nerves, you're not actually thinking about the the product or the offer or the cause that you're here for. And in my case, I'm trying to create the best possible show for the audience. And if I think Seth could offer some value, which there's no way that Seth can't offer value, then not asking him is, is a disservice to my audience. So I, yeah. I have to make the ask. But let's be honest, you had to have prepped for his interview more than you prepped for mine. You had to have gotten, no, he's shaking his head no, everybody. He's shaking his head no. Really, let's drill down on this a little bit. You got Seth one day, you got Lori Guest the next. You've got to be getting more prepped for Seth. You just have to be. <laughs> no, I trust the questions. I love it. I, I trust, trust the questions. questions. I listen. I have a conversation. He's a human being. He's a really nice guy. Like, he's smart and thoughtful, you know, like... I would, I'd be more worried about like having someone who was really belligerent, you know, like Good point. combative. Like I've been on shows where I, I thankfully have listened to the show ahead of time. I know that they're combative in like a funny kind of way. Um, Mike McCallowitz is an example. Like I love being on his show, but I knew ahead of time that he was going to drill me a little bit and we got into it and it was fun. It was wow. so fun. But like, if I hadn't known that, I think I would have been like, ah, you know, what just happened? <laughs> But I think it's important to know like who you're bringing on. And, and I knew he'd be a great guest and, and he, that he also was super experienced as being a guest. It's actually much harder when I bring people on that I discover that don't have a lot of experience doing this. Yeah. And I take the risk on them. I can't listen to them on other shows. I don't know what they're going to be like. And I hope that they're going mean, to, I believe enough in like what they could bring that I hope that it's going to be a good enough show. Um, that's more... Like I can't, I can't prep my way out of that <laughs> per se, but I go in with a little more trepidation of like, like, I hope that like we can, you know, I remind those people that I is a conversation that I'm going to ask follow up. They don't have to speak for four minutes that I will, you know, if they leave me an opening, I'll take one, whether it's the one they expected or not. I have to really caution them. And I sometimes have to edit the, I don't edit my shows usually for length and I've had shows where more novice people, I've just like, I've got to edit a little bit because they just kind of went and mm-hmm. they say things that are so tangential to their message. So mm-hmm. I help, I want to make them look good. That's like a really important piece for me is make the guests look good. And I want to c- produce a quality show uh, for my audience. Well, the other nice thing is because it isn't live, if we really did with a guest go down a path you don't want to, you have the option to edit or to not air at all. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done an episode where you just couldn't air it for one personal reason or another? One of my earliest interviews was with somebody that was giving me a hard time about scheduling. And in the end, we scheduled for 30 minutes. And when I started doing my type of questioning, he only wanted to do his story the way he always had done his story. And a few minutes in said, this is not interesting and that end of the show. And I was a little shook. I mean, I was really new to the whole, I was probably within the first 20 episodes. 
But looking back, I'm so glad actually that he just sort of made a decision and we let it go. And I've never had anyone even come close to it like that. I've, I always think what it must be like for, you know, you see those TV interviewers that get, uh, you know, somebody, a, a, a hothead in the seat and they're taping it and the guy just rips off the microphone and says, we're done here and throws it down. It's all this high drama, you know, and those are so fun to watch. I've often wondered, like, does anybody run a podcast where things have gone amiss or do they or do they ever air it anyway? You know, probably not. That'd be interesting, though. Probably not. But I think what I've now, this is again why I say I trust my questions. You know, I've now heard from people like you who have been on the circuit that I have good questions and that I'm a good interviewer. So I don't rely on any one person's like opinion anymore. But that's yeah. what's hard about starting in a medium when you're still green and unsure of what, what works and whether you're doing it right to have someone give that kind of feedback. But yeah, I ha- other than that, like, I've, I've aired everything I've interviewed because I, I choose people carefully. You know, I have a long list of possibilities and only 50 episodes a year. And actually I was, every other guest was a woman. And then two years ago, I shifted it to two out of every three guests are women. And so the number of guys on my show are about 16 a year. So I joke, you have to be, you know, Seth Godin or, um, I don't know. It's like you have to be somewhere up there, you know, like Scott yeah. Stratton, um, yeah. Micah Michalowicz. Like these are the kind of people that I want on my show. Yeah. And, you know, other than that, you just being a, a white dude who wrote a book does not, to me, make you a thought leader. And so yeah. Yeah. I, I have to, I have a more careful sort of um, selection process now. One of the interesting things you just said that I want to go back and and pull on the string just a little bit, because I think it's really important um, for those who are listening, is that there comes a time when we have to trust our own gut and trust our own thoughts and not need somebody to confirm. And that's one of the biggest shifts I've seen in my own work in the last, I would say, maybe eight, five to eight years. It used to be that I was going to write an article. For example, right now I'm writing an article about when is the right time to start selling again. At the time of this recording, we're just coming to the middle, I hope, middle to back end of the coronavirus, right? And so Um, everybody's talking about when can we sell again? And so as I get ready to think about putting out information about that, I was inclined today to think, well, I wonder if so-and-so and and -and so-and-so would agree with me on this. Do I just think this or does so-and-so, because if so-and-so thinks it, then okay, I have confidence. You know, that's what was going through my head. And at the last minute today, I thought, you know what, this is what I believe to be true. And it may or may not right now. It's, I think we kind of have a level playing field because I think it's anybody's guess. And even even somebody that I really respect, like a Seth Godin, could have his opinion on what happens next. He might be right and he might not. So why don't I have as much ability to express a thought on this? And I think that's kind of what you're saying is that you trust your questions, you trust your research, and I don't have to agree with you on what you think to be true. Um, I just think that's interesting. Tell me your thoughts about that. I no, I, I 100% agree on all of it. And I think this comes with experience. This is This is like... I'm 45. You know, I feel like I've earned my ability to have an opinion and hold to it. Not in a, not like a, not in a stubborn way. Um, one of the best descriptions I've heard of this is actually from Danny Inney. So I'm a part-time business strategist for his uh, entrepreneur coaching program. And he had to make a really tough decision to move his, his big event that they use as a lead gen for his coaching program from in-person to online. And up until the day that they decided to move it online, he was still saying, it's going to be live. We're going to be in Montreal. 
he was committed. He was deeply, deeply, deeply committed to this. And, and like the idea of it being virtual was like unheard of, couldn't be done, et cetera. And then he shifted and wholeheartedly moved to being online. And he said, strong beliefs held lightly. Nice. And so he deeply hit strong beliefs about it having to be in person. And when that reality just became apparent to him that that was not going to happen, he let go of it and, and just pivoted immediately into pouring all the same energy into creating the best possible experience. And actually in the show notes, I'll share a great little highlights reel because I got to MC the opening and closing of the event. And it was so much fun and so highly engaged. So, you know, speaking of all the virtual stuff I've been working on. So I, I just think that is, that is the kind of leader that I would want to be. Strong beliefs held lightly. Yeah, I love that. And it's fun when you can take uh, something and boil it down to a couple words, how powerful that can be, where you think, oh, I never, I never really thought of it that way. And yes, that makes sense. And, and I think it's true about the idea of giving up things, finally letting go, even when we're not in a crisis mode, just even in you and your own house with your own business, there comes a time when you have to say, you know, I always thought it was going to be like this. And now I realize I just need to let go and adjust and do that little tiny pivot. Have you had that that moment in your career having nothing to do with the situation we're in today? Well, Where you had to let go and pivot. I mean, other than saying no to that really awesome idea for that other podcast. Do you want to know what yeah, the idea was, by the way? One. What's that? Do you want to know what the idea was? I was going to ask, but I was afraid maybe you didn't want to tell us. No, I'm it's very okay. curious. At this you point, I, I almost want someone else to do oh, it because I'm, yes, I'm pretty committed great. to not doing it now. Okay. I wanted to do a show where I interviewed parents who had, who had become inventors because they were trying to solve a problem that they experienced as parents. Oh, wow. So Isn't I was that a looking, very narrow niche? Yes, but also then there, I thought like everyone I talked to was interested. So entrepreneurs in general were interested, parents in general were interested, and parents who wanted to become entrepreneurs were interested. So it's a very like parentpreneur- yeah. Like mompreneurs, tons of mompreneur stuff. Sure. Um, and it's it's just there's no space in it. And I it it was just a super exciting. It reminds me of the show How I Built This by NPR. Yeah. Like um Guy Raz. Like I love those stories. And I was thinking like those kinds of stories, but hot like someone invented something that like cuts hot dogs. Like, yeah. I think it's the strangest thing in the world that we need it, but someone decided that's a problem and we need to solve that. And I, but just, when your kid's choking on a dog, that's yeah, an issue. Yeah. Right. But like, and what was the, what was the trademark? Um, parentpreneur. No, yeah. sorry. Parent. Sorry. No, no. Parent founders. I had to remember that. So parent, parent founders okay. is what I went with. So parent founders is the trademark. And, um, because that's what they are. They're parent founders and they like create businesses. So I don't know. That was the idea. I think letting go of that, um, I think leaving my career to focus on my business and, and being open to shifting audiences from the nonprofit world and then kind of meandering to the obvious association world. Like it, sure. it was amazing that I didn't do it, that it wasn't automatic, <laughs> but you know, I wrote a book and then I did a coaching program and I t- sort of did a bunch of things. I really was focusing on, on building a strong foundation for my business rather than chasing profit. And I feel really good about the decisions I made. That is really good. So pretty soon we're going to head into the last challenging question in just a few minutes. But before I do that, what do you think, because I'm not a podcast interviewer, if you were me, what would you have asked you? 
<laughs> what do you ask me? Um, such a such an interesting, like loopy kind of question. It is. I, I know. I'm trying to think. I mean, I feel like um, I would I would actually like to know more about the virtual stuff that you mentioned in the intro. Okay, that does make sense. <laughs> and I think you're excited about it. I know I am. I'm really excited yeah. about the the rejuvenation that I feel about the industry that we're in. I don't know about you, but I just started to get a smidgy stale with the same old. I still love the work and don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining, but there was a little bit of staleness. And then all of a sudden, new and different is here. And it re, re, it just reinvigorated me. And I think it did you too. So, so Robbie, tell me a little bit about some of the virtual things that you're doing right now that we you're talk- excited about. Yeah, we talked about how I really care deeply about creating these amazing in-person experiences, and particularly with the experience, the year two experience. But I, here's the thing. The International Association of Exhibitions and Events found that 76% of people surveyed so that networking was a top driver for why they chose to go to an event. So networking is what gets people to leave their house and get on a plane, which makes sense, except that in actuality, when people get to the event, they're not that great at it. (laughs) They're not great (laughs) at following through on that intention, which is where I come in. But virtual events up until this moment in time have not had to be anything other than about content. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, traditionally, like a virtual summit was just a series of essentially video interviews Mm -hmm. that were released over a period of time, but there was no community component. I think that can no longer be true because events are about content and about connection. And if we can't have live events, then virtual events have to step up. They cannot be the exception to that. So I've now been thinking about everything from, you know, virtual summits and how do you incorporate community around that um, to large scale events, like the one that Danny just, and Danny Eni just did, um, where we had over 500 people there and creating engagement and community. People gave testimony in this highlights reel about how intimate the connections were because the way we ran it. And even more so than it might've been in person, because in person, people, again, aren't great at going and talking to people they don't know and having real engaged, authentic conversation over lunch, where we put them in a small group in a, in a breakout room and said, here's a, here's a story we want you each to tell. Here's the story prompt. And man, the people just, they loved it. They loved it. There's so many neat ways we can use technology to, to build that connection. And I'm really excited because I think virtual events will never kind of let go of this. I think that even when we go back to live events, which I, I can't wait for that because I think there's something really magical about live, but I think virtual events will always be just turned up several notches and we're all better for it. But people don't know how to do that. I think that there's a difference and something I'm becoming aware of between knowing how to use technology and knowing how to do it well. And it's sort of like knowing how to speak into a microphone and being a professional speaker. <laughs> you know, Absolutely like, true. And do you think we go back to live events the way we did before? Do you see that on the back end of this? Or do you think we're forever changed in our industry? I actually think we go back. Uh, it. I don't think it's more... I mean, we're now in, you know, April. I don't think it's probably, maybe, I actually think it's over a year from now. It's probably more like a year and a half to two years from now before we have major convenings. There are people fly from all points of the globe. I think that's going to be the slowest. We're going to start to see some local and regional things happening where people can drive. But it's going to be hard for people to invest in a big scale event, not knowing whether people will go. And so there's going to be a tension. Someone's going to step out and try it and we're all going to watch. 
but I think that until then, you know, we're going to do this. And I, but I also, I've been making this prediction for a couple of years now. I think that in-person events are, are going to become even more important as people crave that kind of connection. Now, I didn't know the pandemic was coming when I said that, but I was thinking that people who were raised on screens and talking through texting and all of that, when they get a taste of a well-run, well-executed event where they get to truly experience the content and the connections, that they're going to want more of that. So when we do go back to live events, it's going to be really important that people get that right out of the gate. So in that way, I think, I hope our industry has been shifted and you know, meeting professionals international has been wanting this to happen forever. Right. So maybe more and more people will step up and, and really focus on the experience part of it, not just the meeting part of it. Very good. All right. You ready for your last question? Go for it. Okay, here it is. So there's a distant day in the future, way, way, way in the future, where your kids find this episode in a time capsule. And there is one thing that you have never said on the podcast before about your opinions on life, leadership, or the pursuit of happiness. And you've never said it before in the podcast. This is the episode where your kids are going to hear your opinion about one of those things. What do you want them to hear? I, I just want them to trust themselves and live the life that they, they dream. I, I, you know, it's so hard as a parent because you want so much for them, but I want them to be themselves fully. That's, it's like, I don't have, it's like, it's about, it's funny. I remember building an organization years ago where it was like, build it and let get out of its way. Like building, I mean, that's what ha- is parenting. It's like you give them all the, the like love and reinforcement you can, and then you try to get out of their way and see what they do with it. And then you go back in and you like, you like help them out a little more and you like, you know, prop them up when they start to follow, you know, you just, so I just want them to be happy and fully engaged in expressing who they are and find also the kind of partner in life, the kind of co-host in life that I found with my wife, because that would be amazing for them. Like that would be tremendous because I know how much that's changed my life. That is awesome. What a great answer. Well, I am about ready to turn the wheel back over to you. Normally at this time in the show, we would ask, where can people find out more about you? But I'm thinking since it's your podcast, they probably already know it. So what a great guest you were on the schmooze. Thanks for being my guest today. And I turn the driving wheel back to you. Laurie, this this has been so much fun. And actually, I do have something I want to share with people, which is my nine ways to network in a pandemic which you can find at robbysamuels.com forward slash nine ways. So if you've been wondering, like, how do I do this when there's no live events? There are lots of ways and I'm giving you nine to start with it. Lori, this has been a fun and interesting and unexpected conversation. Thank you for making this happen. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lori and learned a bit about my leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 200. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show. If you've been listening from the early days four years ago, thank you. Your ongoing support has been greatly appreciated. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. 
If you've recently become a regular listener, you're invited to dive into my 20 favorite guest interviews from the first three and a half years. It was very hard to choose just 20. You'll find them in the show notes for episode 200 at ontheschmooze.com. That's my Pinterest-inspired archive page. If you enjoyed this 200th episode, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. It would be such a great fourth anniversary gift to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when we'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.